In 2010, on a Saturday morning, my dad was in the middle of writing his sermon when something happened. He couldn't think straight, and when he went to tell my stepmom, he made sounds like words, but they were gibberish. They rushed to the hospital, and after a battery of tests, they found a brain tumor. He had melanoma in 2005, and after successful removal, it had returned metastasized on his brain and lungs. Over the coming months, he would have surgery on his brain and chemo and radiation. When he was well enough, they went to remove the tumors on his lungs. They did a scan on the way in for surgery and found the unimaginable. The tumors were gone, all of them. My dad proclaimed himself the miracle man. We celebrated. Who gets better from stage four? Only he didn't get better. He didn't have cancer, no visible tumors, but he started having mobility and cognitive problems at 64 years old. He had several small and not so small car accidents and gave up his keys. He and my stepmom went back to the doctors. As it turned out, the radiation was a Hail Mary. He had stage four, he was going to die anyway, so they did this thing to save his life. And it killed the cancer, but it wrecked his brain. For no discernible reason, he slowly lost the ability to walk. He couldn't think straight and forgot things from my childhood and from the week before. It was funny at first, then puzzling, then distressing. We thought he'd been saved, but he was dying anyway, just differently. In the meantime, my relationship with my stepmother, which was fine at the best of times, seemed to be degenerating in tandem with my dad. Here was this moment when we could link arms and fight this nasty thing, or at least walk together in the last steps of my dad's life, but instead we fought. She was mean and selfish. I suspect that she'd say something similar about me. In 2014, he came to live with us so that we could care for him. We did, and we fought with my stepmother about everything, money and time and care. In 2016, he had a stroke and ended up in the hospital and then in the Oregon Veterans Home, a brand new, beautiful facility where the nurses gave him loving and sweet care where they would take him to the Catholic Church on Sunday and the casino on Tuesday, <laughs> where the architecture accommodated walkers and wheelchairs. But that is not cheap. And that summer, after visiting only once in the last year, she came and got him and moved him back to her house. In a moment of lucidity, he told his friend that he was going home to die. And that's what he did. I know that I don't have to say it, but I am still angry. He died five years ago, and I am almost as resentful now as I was five years ago when she drove away on that hot June day. I am certain that this story sounds different when she tells it. I am not asking for forgiveness, nor is she. And I'm not ready to forgive yet, either. Today we get a little snippet of Joseph's story. 
There aren't a ton of complete stories in the Bible, beginning, middle, and end. But Joseph's is one. He is one of Jacob's 12 sons, the second to the last. And irritatingly, he is his dad's favorite. Jacob loves him so much that he has a coat made for him, a special one with long sleeves. Joseph dreams prophetically. In fact, he has two dreams where 11 bow down to him. His 11 brothers don't love that. One day, the brothers are shepherding and see Joseph coming. They devise an evil plan to kill him. The plan takes a couple of turns and results in Joseph being sold into slavery, and eventually, he finds himself in prison. While there, the Pharaoh learns that Joseph is a seer and asks what he sees for the future. As they talk, Pharaoh begins to trust him and makes him an advisor. Joseph builds a good life in Egypt. Many years into his time away from his family, the famine he prophesied begins, and his brothers go for help. When they arrive, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, which is where our story picks up today. He tells his brothers that he is Joseph. I wonder what they thought. Joseph who? Or our brother? Or, oh no. I have a hard time putting myself in the place of Joseph on this one, but I can imagine the brothers, that stomach-dropping realization that this is the brother they plotted to kill and then sold into slavery. The brother they must have thought of time to time over the years, the one whose death they faked. Joseph asks after his father, but they can't answer. Come closer to me, he says. Joseph is rich and powerful. They must be terrified as they approach, but also stuck. They cannot say no. And so the 11 of them lean in. What will Joseph do? Will he shout at them, hit them, imprison them? Joseph does the unimaginable. He tells them not to be distressed or angry with themselves. What? God has put me here to help others, he tells them. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. They don't ask for forgiveness. In fact, the story doesn't say much of them at all. Instead of being mad or using his powers to punish them for what they did, Joseph casts it aside and asks after his dad. All of that doesn't matter. He wants to know if his father is still alive. It is an inspiring, if mystifying, story. I want to give that kind of grace in my life. Sometimes there is a little voice inside me that whispers about forgiveness, about how the anger I feel is its own cancer, and how my stepmom isn't asking for and probably doesn't need my forgiveness about how I need to give it for my sake. But this anger has become a part of me, part of the story of how my dad died. I hold, nurture, and sustain it deep in my belly. I protect it from the healing arms of love and grace so that it can remain, maybe even grow, untouched and untransformable. I have built a tabernacle for this rage, 
an ornate box with strong walls of self-righteousness. This anger feels reasonable and virtuous. She wronged me and my poor dying dad at the lowest and most painful moment. It is unforgivable. Sometimes though, in the quiet moments, when I look in that box, I realize that my fury is so interwoven with the grief that I don't even know where to start to entangle them. Maybe it is that Joseph's entire story is here, laid out chapter after chapter, so that we get to see what it looks like when people truly, deeply injure one another and how that can resolve in restoration and not destruction. My friend's brilliant daughter reflected the other night that hurt people hurt people. My stepmom and I were grief-stricken and heartbroken, losing someone we loved, neither of us leaning into our better angels. And I know that at least some, or a lot, or even most of that anger is sorrow wearing a defensive mask. Jesus tells us what to do. Listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And Joseph shows us one way that that can be. I don't know if his brothers would have asked for forgiveness, but Joseph, the person in power, doesn't let them. He kisses and weeps over them, and in fact tells them how God used their actions for good. It is a beautiful story of forgiveness, which is but a glimpse of the perfect absolution we receive from God when we are sorry, when we know we should be, and when we hope to be someday. I want to say that everything is resolved now between my stepmom and I, but there are no neat bows for our story. I'm sorry that my dad died, and I did regretful things when he was dying, as did others, which I would find understanding in someone else's family. For now, I will continue to confess my sins, known and unknown, in the hopes that over time, I will understand my own actions better. Listen, love, do good, bless and pray for those around me as best I can, especially those who seem least worthy. And I will aspire to Joseph's story that I may one day feel that kind of peace with those who have wronged me. Because over and over again, Holy Scripture reminds us that God always, always leans towards us, waiting to kiss us and weep upon our faces.